Arsenal for Democracy is freely available weekly at arsenalfordemocracy.com or Apple and Stitcher. And we're supported by some listeners at patreon.com slash arsenalfordemocracy for $3 a month. The show is recorded and produced by me, Bill Humphrey, in Newton, Massachusetts. Our theme music is produced by Stuntbird. Follow us on Facebook or at AFD Radio on Twitter. The show is not affiliated with any campaign committee, and each participant's opinions are their own. This man is your land. This man is my land. California. New York Island. The Redwood Forest. Gulf Stream Waters. This land was made you and me. You're listening to Arsenal for Democracy, episode 452, recorded on Sunday, December 11th, 2022. I'm your host, Bill Humphrey. Joining me on the line from Idaho, as always, is Rachel. Hello, Rachel. Hi, Bill. So today we're talking about the Burlington Railroad Strike of 1888. And at the time of recording, again, Sunday, December 11th, uh, we are a few weeks past the fall 2022 vote by the union representing railroad engineers not to strike by very narrow margins and the almost equally narrow vote by the union representing train conductors to reject a proposed contract and potentially strike. However, this is also quickly followed by Congress passing a law banning such a strike and enforcing the contract proposal anyway, which President Joe Biden immediately signed. As we have discussed on past episodes about labor unrest on U.S. railroads historically, one of the factors that most often seemed to doom any strike action, no matter how many people decided to walk off the job, was whether or not the engineers and firemen decided to support or lead a strike instead of continuing to operate trains normally while supporting workers picketing. In our November 20, 2022 episode, episode 449, on the Great Southwest Railroad Strike of 1886 by the Knights of Labor, we noted that while many unions participated in that strike and had the sympathies of many engineers and firemen, those key unions did not end up refusing to work, and so the trains continued to move more often than not as long as the railroad could get them operational and ready to roll out without the usual support workers. The engineers and firemen in 1886 had remained reticent to strike after the failures of the nationwide Great Railroad Strike of 1877, which we covered in episode 315 in July 2020. Less than two years after the 1886 strike on the Gould Lines in Missouri and Texas and nearby, a smaller strike broke out on a different railroad, and this time the engineers and firemen both decided to give striking another shot, but once again, things quickly fell apart, and it made them reluctant to participate in further strikes yet again, including quite famously the attempted industry-wide railroad strike in 1894, known as the Pullman Strike. The unsuccessful 1888 strike is the subject of today's episode, and it played out on a single railroad, the Chicago, Burlington, and Quincy, also known as the Q, or the Burlington. A railroad that provided extensive cattle freight service into Chicago's meatpacking industry, lumber deliveries to Chicago, as well as some suburban Chicago commuter rail service. This was a relatively small strike, focusing on the most elite workers on the railroad, but it was an extremely influential affair because of how the experience shifted the views of one particular leader at the Brotherhood of Locomotive Firemen, a certain Eugene V. Debs, future Pullman strike leader, with Ben until then an advocate for labor peace with management and a firm defender of specialized craft unionism instead of industrial unionism covering all occupations within a single business or even an entire industry. The 1888 strike was also significant because it was an early test for the newly created Interstate Commerce Commission since a strike affected a number of states, 
including Illinois, Iowa, Nebraska, Missouri, and some others, and because the strikers had hoped they might rally sympathy actions on other nearby lines. So, why did the Burlington engineers and firemen decide to strike in 1888 instead of backing down as their unions typically did? While many other railroads deliberately promoted good relations with their unionized engineers and firemen in order to secure their cooperation against the other unions during strike actions, this approach was not shared by the, even more than typical, anti-union leadership of the CBNQ, which especially smelled blood in the water after the defeat of the nearby 1886 strikes by the Knights of Labor, organizing among the other craft unions in the rail industry. The crux of the issue on the queue for engineers and firemen considering going out on strike was that railroad's strong commitment to using a different wage formula for paying them than nearby competing peer railroads, whose simplified miles-operated formula tended to pay engineers and firemen better overall. While other railroads, particularly in the past, would have decided it was safest to reach a compromise with them and keep them on side against other unionists, Burlington's President Charles Elliott Perkins and General Manager Henry B. Stone decided to correctly gamble that the unions were weak and vulnerable and that they could win a showdown against even their most skilled workers. Although they were taken by surprise by the strike actually breaking out in late February 1888, and although they were even more surprised by the near-total walkout by the two unions instead of a significant share of engineers and firemen remaining at their posts, the railroad's management nevertheless managed to hire enough skilled replacement workers quickly enough to put the whole matter to bed in less than two months, and no amount of protests over the rest of the year were able to move them, eventually leading to a total surrender by the two unions, whose workers had all been permanently replaced already. The company also heavily relied on Pinkerton agents, both for security and to infiltrate and provoke the striking workers, into taking actions the public would reject, such as dynamite attacks. So here's the timeline of the events. So beginning in January 23rd, before the strike started, there was a grievance committee meeting of the Brotherhood of uh, Locomotive Engineers in Burlington, Iowa, which was joined by the adjusting committee of the Brotherhood of Locomotive Firemen. The two bodies met separately to list their individual concerns before a joint meeting with 14 delegates from each body on January 25th. The B of LE's chief concern was the termination of an engineer for failing to keep his schedule. The terminated engineer was a major member of the B of LE's previous grievance committee. The joint grievance committee failed to get the fired engineer reinstated by CB&Q's general manager, Henry B. Stone, leaving a lot of ill will towards the railroad on the part of the Brotherhoods. So on February 15th, the Grievance Committee brought forward the proposal for the change in pay for employees. So as Bill mentioned, pay was determined by the condition of the routes and the seniority of employees rather than the much more common mileage-based pay, which um, all the neighboring railroads in the region were paid. So they were paid in, at a much higher rate than CB&Q, causing their grievance. So the committee proposed a switch to a mileage-based rate which Stone refused via a letter sent on February 22nd. A series of face-to-face -face meetings followed between Stone and labor leadership, where Stone continued to reject the workers' proposal. The head of the B of LE, Peter M. Arthur, and the head of the B of LF, Frank P. Sargent, met with Stone on February 23rd, where they noted that 90% of neighboring roads used a mileage-based pay rate, and they were asking no more than what those other engineers and firemen received. They even offered a lower rate than was previously proposed. 
3.5 cents per mile from passenger lines rather than their initial demand of 4 cents per mile, but Stone stood firm. After this failed meeting, Arthur and Sargent sent a telegram to ZB&Q President Charles Elliott Perkins stating their intention to strike, but also noting that they were prepared to negotiate in good faith to prevent a strike from occurring. Quoting from the, that telegram, We'll accept the same terms we made with the Chicago and Alton and Santa Fe systems, three and one half cents per mile passenger service, four cents per mile freight service, 60% of the above rates for firemen, end quote. On February 24th, the next day, Perkins sent his response, quote, At this distance, and without knowing more than I do about the merits of the grievances complained of, it is impossible for me to have definite opinions or give definite orders. The Chicago, Burlington, and Quincy is ready and expects to pay at least as good wages as are paid by its neighbors, but the railroad situation is not such as to justify any general increase at present, and I fear an attempt to force it would only aggravate the situation. I have felt and still feel confident that a way can be found for satisfactorily adjusting any real grievances which may have grown up since matters were settled two years ago, and I hope for the sake of all concerned that nothing will be done hastily. I expect to be in Chicago next week." End quote. So over the next two or three days, the Joint Committee discusses to meet Perkins' telegram, and they're generally dissatisfied, and so they vote for a strike set to begin Monday, February 27th. The delegates go home to announce the strike to their fellow workers in person and to begin preparations for the strike. On February 26th, the Sunday, the day before, the company is informed of the appending strike. The announcement was delayed in the hopes that a resolution would be found before the announcement went live. So that Monday, February 27th, the very next day after they make the announcement, at 4 a.m., engineers and firemen abandon their engines at their terminal point. If they were on the road, they returned to the nearest terminal point and left their post. CB and Q were taken, taken by surprise by the short notice of the strike and quickly scrambled to keep the suburban passenger lines running as their top priority as they were the second largest commuter line in the region. No freight would run until full passenger service was restored. There was an almost total walkout among the engineers and firemen, or engine men. Only 22 engineers out of 1,052 and 23 firemen out of 1,085 remained on the job after the strike deadline, so only about 2% of workers remained at their post. This left the company scrambling to find people who could work the engines. They called on employees, including the superintendent of the Iowa lines, the superintendents of the Telegraph and Water Service, 14 conductors, and several brakemen. Only four new engineers were hired as strike breakers in the first three days of the strike. However, the company quickly began recruiting strike breakers to work on the engines to replace the emergency engine men pulled from management. Perkins also hired Pinkerton agents to start breaking the strike however they could. So after you bring in the Pinkertons, violence isn't far behind. So March 3rd, a striking engineer, George Watts, was fatally shot by a deputized Burlington foreman in Brookfield, Missouri. And uh, a month later, um, April 28th, in Galesburg, Illinois, a strikebreaker named Albert Hedberg shot two strikers himself. One of the men, Burlington engineer Herbert W. Newell, died from his wounds. So over the course of this strike, uh, there were two casualties, and they were both on the striking side. Um, the strikebreakers didn't uh, have any casualties whatsoever. So going back to the timeline, March 5th, the union asked union members on other lines to boycott CB&Q by refusing to load freight on its trains. 
And so after that escalation on March 8th, Perkins sought a federal injunction that would force other lines to load freight on CB&Q trains. And a few days later, on March 13th, the federal court issued the injunction and almost every aspect of labor relations on every railroad involved in interstate commerce came under court control, which pretty much was the beginning of the end for the strike. But it continued. Um, At the end of the month, March 30th, there was a report of riots in Aurora, Illinois, where strikers burned company buildings and a passenger coach. Um, Over the next few months, uh, into May through July of 1888, a series of small dynamite explosions occurred on CB&Q tracks. Nobody is hurt in these explosions, but six men are arrested in the ensuing investigation. And on July 13th, the trial for the six men accused of sabotaging the tracks began. Uh, One of the defendants, uh, Mr. J.Q. Wilson, was identified as a Pinkerton infiltrator named Mulligan, and his charges were dropped, and he just kind of quietly went over to the other side of the court. And the leader of the plot, John A. Bowerizen, was convicted, and he received the longest sentence of the group, two years. Um, the, the strike kind of dragged on, even though it was practically and for all intents and purposes over. And then on, finally, on January, 1889, the strike is officially ended by the B of LE and B of LF. And it was a complete failure for the unions. Um, all of the striking engine men were successfully replaced by the company and none of their demands were met. So as we said earlier, this strike was relatively minor on its own terms and in, in its own scale, but has a significant effect on the thinking of Eugene Debs specifically, although he was a relatively minor figure as the treasurer of the Brotherhood of Locomotive Firemen. So bear that in mind as we discuss the coverage of this uh, event as it unfolds, especially at the beginning. And you can think about some of the things that he might have been thinking as he's watching this strike that starts off in what seems to be very promising from the point of view of his union and the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers, and then just almost immediately collapses into failure. Uh, and it also becomes clear that it had failed before they realized that it had failed. And they were, they were already past the point of no return, probably even before that court injunction. So as we often do now when we cover historical railroad strikes, today we've gathered some contemporary news clippings from newspapers of the relevant time and place to get a sense of what the general public was reading about these events, whether positive coverage or more frequently negative coverage. So we're going to be reading uh, or uh, summarizing articles from the Chicago Tribune. Most listeners will know this is not a particularly friendly publication toward labor unions And that is borne out in this coverage. But it's, again, important to understand what it is that the rest of the public and the business community and the middle classes and so forth are reading. If you're not reading like your local socialist uh, newspaper or your union's newspaper, this would be the type of coverage that you would be reading to get information on the strikes. And in particular, this one, uh, you're going to see there was not a lot of people getting information through non-media sources about what was happening. Some of the previous strikes we've talked about, a lot of members of the general public can just go see what's happening and learn for themselves. That's going to not be the case here. So let's get rolling. We'll start with Tuesday, February 28th. Uh, from the Chicago Tribune's morning edition. So this is sort of a recap, summary, and analysis of the previous day, February 27th, which was the first day of the strike. 
Much of the coverage of the first day of the strike the previous day focused on the spectacular crash in Naperville, Illinois, outside Chicago, by a runaway locomotive under a replacement crew called up from the shops into a mail car that it was supposed to be linking up to and moving. The most severely injured person was a clerk in the mail car who happened to be the half-brother of a Chicago congressman, adding another layer of sensational newsworthiness. After the locomotive collided with the mail car at about 40 miles per hour, according to eyewitnesses, that man ended up pinned in the wreckage for an hour and a half. Given the strict contracts that railroads had for providing federal mail service, it seems likely that the untrained engineer, who had made several mistakes leading up to the collision, was feeling under pressure to try to get back on his way, further compounding those mistakes. The paper also emphasized that the union had managed to take the company by surprise by announcing the strike on a Sunday afternoon, barely more than 12 hours before it would commence in the early hours of Monday. Colorfully commenting on the white-collar company employees being called up to service as trainmen on short notice, the paper wrote, quote, It is safe to surmise that their slumbers were broken by nightmares in which a horrible railroad disaster formed the central figure, end quote. On the other hand, a lot of the coverage simply noted that those employees had managed to deliver various suburban morning and afternoon commuter trains into and out of Chicago well enough, even if they were, in some cases, still wearing the retail tags on their new overalls. The Tribune interviewed Burlington President Charles Elliott Perkins about the impasse in negotiations. He remarked, quote, We cannot turn over the control or management of the road to our employees, end quote. Perkins was asked how many engineers and firemen worked for the railroad, and the answer was about 1,000 each, consistent with the overview that Rachel presented earlier, which gives us a sense of the relatively small scale of the strike compared to some of the others we've discussed on the show that have often involved hundreds of thousands of strikers, if not more. Perkins was asked where he thought he could find that many replacement workers quickly, and he commented that a recent failed strike attempt on the Reading Railroad in Pennsylvania had left a great number of engineers unemployed, and that there was a large pool of engineers working on New England short lines who might be eager for more work at better pay on a bigger railroad. Now, as a note, the narrative presented at the time makes this Reading strike an important uh, overlapping event with this that feeds into this. It's hard to tell how much it actually affected things, but that was the perception at the time. That was kind of the focus of a lot of uh, flurrying of activities on both sides was to try to deal with how these two strikes were going to interact with each other. I looked up the strike attempt mentioned in Pennsylvania. I think we'll probably do an episode on that one because it was not just a rail strike. It was more complicated than that. Uh, But it seems that Perkins might have been somewhat mistaken on the exact details uh, because, in fact, the Brotherhood of Engineers there stood very enthusiastically with the railroad against certain other workers organized in the Knights of Labor. And it was some of these non-engineers, as opposed to the engineers he referenced, who reportedly ended up relocating to the Midwest to work for the Burlington in retaliation for the gleeful Brotherhood of Engineers' actions on the Reading, at least according to a footnote in an article from 1968 on labor unrest in Pennsylvania coal country in 1887 and 1888 that I read. Um, But the Reading situation does come up again in later Tribune articles as well. Uh, And so it clearly did have some impact, uh, although it's always hard to tell with the Tribune's coverage how much stuff was reality versus how much stuff was them deliberately attempting to stir up trouble and animosity among the workers in order to weaken their position. 
The union leaders recounted to the Tribune what they perceived as weeks of bad faith negotiations from the company in the run-up to the strike. Management at other pier railroads were quoted anonymously as believing that the strike would fail if it did not spread beyond the Burlington, and that therefore they were prepared to take very careful measures to ensure that it did not spread to their own railroads and undermine the general cause of railroad management everywhere in the region. The Tribune asserted that the strike was partially caused by the more militant pro-striking wing of the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers gaining control of leadership of that union, which they had previously not been able to control. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's what they claimed. The Tribune also quotes extensively on that first day of coverage uh, from a Knights of Labor railroad worker from a different union saying that the Brotherhoods would lose the fight and be replaced by Knights of Labor members in retaliation for 1886. That, again, was the Great Southwest Railroad Strike of 1886, which, um, while this strike mostly centers on Chicago, but also extensive other geographical areas, that one heavily centered on places like St. Louis, which is, again, not that far away. And so there was a lot of kind of regional overlap happening there. And the contention being made here, again, at least from the point of view of this coverage, was that the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers had betrayed that strike, had they had kept the trains operating, they had sealed the fate of that strike, and therefore that the Knights of Labor were going to get back at them by serving as replacement crews, scab workers, etc. Um, again, not saying that's what happened, saying that is the way that the coverage was presented uh, by the Tribune. Uh, this was a theme repeated throughout the Tribune's coverage on February 28th, over uh, three pages of coverage just about this strike, and, and uh, I'll discuss that further in a moment. On the other hand, a different worker, observing the events of the previous day, enthusiastically predicted a general strike of engineers across the region beginning within a week, which of course also did not materialize. The Tribune summarized the views of various newspapers from around the region about the first day of striking, with some expressing hostility to the strike, some staking out a neutral view wishing for labor peace to return, and a few arguing that the railroad either should or would make concessions to end the strike, and that the rarity of an engineer's strike pointed to the Burlington being out of line with pier railroads. Another small wreck was reported in Iowa where a train operated by a mechanic failed to stop at a crossing point with a different railroad and hit a locomotive from that railroad. One passenger train going from Nebraska to Chicago saw most of the passengers hurriedly get off the train at the first station they stopped at because of how roughly the replacement crew was running it, and they didn't want to take that chance of not getting to their destination safely. Uh, it's mentioned also that service out in Wyoming stopped completely for a lack of replacement crews. As I said, the railroad was mostly concentrated across Illinois and oriented to Chicago, but it did actually have trackage all the way out to Colorado and Wyoming, so the strike did extend out there as well. Um, turning now to page three of this first day of coverage, the company management emphasized to the Tribune that they were completely confident of victory, deluged by job applications, and holding the enthusiastic loyalty and cooperation of the train conductors. Uh, this again points to this question, which you can see the influence that it had on Eugene Debs of this issue of um, inter-Nissine squabbles between different unions and the unions being pitted against each other such that the strike ends in failure. Uh, again, be careful and take this with a grain of salt because they're trying to spin a narrative in the newspaper here. But again, it shows kind of the overarching theme of what was 
uh, allegedly happening. And that's how people would have thought about it at the time and would have been thinking in terms of their takeaways afterwards, probably. The management also accused strikers of interfering with train operations by jumping on to stop trains and setting the brakes. Unclear the extent to which that was actually true. Uh, as Rachel already said, this strike was mostly characterized by a lot of nothing happening, and that's going to be a recurring theme that we're going to be hearing about throughout the rest of our narrative today. One alleged statement to the Tribune from an applicant outside one of the Burlington offices was that he had lost his job during the 1886 strike nearby, and he blamed the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers for that defeat and his loss of work, so he was prepared to take a job from one of them in response. However, the Knights of Labor, including local leadership from an official standpoint, was careful to emphasize to the Tribune that as an organization, they were standing in solidarity with the two brotherhoods. And although they were not joining them on strike, they also were not supplying scabs in retaliation for the events of 1886. The District Assembly 24 of the Knights of Labor passed a resolution formally discouraging scabbing to help the queue. The company claimed they did not have a lot of perishable freight sitting around when the strike began. It's unclear if this is really accurate or not. They did apparently prioritize dealing with a trainload of hogs as quickly as possible, according to the Tribune. Typically, the Burlington handled 2,500 head of cattle per day through Chicago. Hundreds of contingent workers who, handle, uh, who handled freight loading and unloading, especially on the Chicago end, and particularly for lumber cargoes, were laid off as soon as the strike began. And although they weren't connected with it, uh, because of the expectation of a reduced need for their services. Now, one sort of odd feature mentioned throughout the coverage of the in the Tribune of the first day of strike action is the apparent absence of visible striking demonstrations, such as picketing in Chicago or indeed in other towns, which were mentioned on page two as they sort of surveyed the landscape in various communities along the system. It was repeatedly emphasized that no one seemed to be stopping or even attempting to talk to any person approaching a train to serve as a replacement crew. This might be explained by the relatively smaller size of these two unions compared to, say, the one we talked about with the Southwest strike uh, in 1886, but it also might be explained by a couple passing lines in the coverage about how the unions were holding continuous local assemblies to discuss the situation amongst themselves and maintain morale, which had the side effect of keeping disgruntled strikers away from the railroad properties so they couldn't get in trouble or even potentially in trouble and get arrested, things like that. Uh, but the exception, not the rule, were stories of scab crews being entreated on day one to abandon their trains. And there's no mention of any meetings or rallies open to the public either, which I think might have helped boost support. So again, most of people's information on this strike is going to be coming from organs like the Chicago Tribune that are broadly quite favorable to management and quite uh, uh, hostile to the strike. And instead, they had these closed sessions for members only all day long. And that seems to me like it would be a tactic doomed to failure. And that continued uh, beyond day one. Um, and perhaps uh, I would speculate that this may have been due to the long shadow of the Haymarket bombing in 1886 in Chicago and the big trial that ensued. Maybe they were very cognizant of trying to be careful about the possibility of provocation or rallies getting out of hand and having violent incidents. Um, wouldn't be surprising with the Pinkertons involved that that could have transpired. 
Uh, but whatever their reasoning, they didn't hold, as far as I can tell, big public rallies uh, or give speeches trying to communicate their position to the public. And there weren't picket lines for the public to go check out. One of the big features of newspaper articles that we looked at for the 1886 strike in places like St. Louis and so forth were the opportunities for members of the general public, if they were bored and had nothing to do, to go down to the tracks and see what was going on and talk to some of the workers and so forth. And instead, the engineers and the firemen in this case are staying in closed door meetings by themselves, only talking to themselves and only reading telegrams from their other members in other communities. And so they're not really getting a general perspective of what's going on. And I think that became a significant problem. Passenger trains were prioritized, as Rachel said, for continued operation before freight trains as a way of triaging the small number of replacement crews to run trains, and they gradually ramped up from there. One of the other strike demands was elaborated in the Tribune coverage, and they interviewed both union members and management employees on other railroads to get a perspective on the nature of the dispute. The reason they were seeking a less complicated pay formula was not just for improving wages by going to a per-mile system, but also to eliminate certain seniority wage benefits, which they believed were having the opposite effect of their supposed perks for more experienced engine men. Instead of getting paid better after a few years of service, those workers were consistently getting fired on phony pretexts as soon as they qualified for better pay so that the railroad could replace them with someone less experienced and thus less expensive. By pushing for a more consistent system, or at least having experience bonuses kick in much earlier in a worker's career, it would be harder to lay off experienced workers to save money. The unions noted that basically all the nearby railroads had already changed the compensation system. The queue held out. The unions also sought a just cause clause on terminations with a process for investigating the alleged cause, and they emphasized a view that the railroad was understaffing the number of crews relative to the workload, which of course is a familiar contention to our present-day ears. The Brotherhood of Locomotive Firemen gave an example of a particular section of Burlington trackage uphill where each fireman would need to physically shovel four tons of coal in under two hours to get there, and then immediately shovel four tons of replacement coal at the top of the hill. One interesting point that the Tribune made was that the actual membership of engineers and firemen in their respective unions was a small fraction of all those working in those jobs nationwide, which left strikes like this vulnerable to the railroad importing non-union but experienced engineers and firemen from elsewhere who didn't care about the brotherhoods. Skilled engineers were not necessarily easy to come by, but not impossible. Eugene Debs is mentioned among the names of national leadership present in Chicago for the strike on the first evening, and in his capacity as the union's treasurer, he is quoted on the financial preparations of the union to try to win the strike. Apparently, the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers had a very large treasury banked up uh, when the Burlington strike broke out at the end of February 1888, something that was confirmed when the Brotherhood offered to pay potential scab engineers not to work at all for the duration of the strike. Later in another article, a scheme is discussed to even try paying other railroads to divert traffic, although it's not clear if this was a real idea or a fanciful rumor, but it would seem that even a large war chest was no guarantee of success on strike. So let's jump ahead uh, to the end of that uh, business week, so to speak, March 3rd morning edition of the Chicago Tribune. The Tribune reported that after several days of striking, the CB&Q's passenger service seemed to have been fully restored, even if freight was still reduced, 
and that the railroad's strategy appeared to be a success, while the strikers' approach focused around assembly meetings appeared to be, quote, ineffectual. Supposedly, the railroad managed to hire some 450 replacement engineers in less than a week to cover the roughly 1,000 on strike. The Tribune's analysis was that if the replacement engineers remained at their new posts, the strike was already functionally over. But if the strikers changed tactics and found a way to get the replacement workers to leave their new jobs, then a strike might find new life. The Brotherhood worked to reach an agreement with the Knights of Labor in Pennsylvania to try to stop Brotherhood members there from scabbing against Knights members on the Reading, who were in turn scabbing against the Brotherhood on the Burlington, but both railroads seemed to be eager to work together to make sure that the workers would be maximally pitted against each other in these two ongoing disputes. The Reading said they wouldn't hire back any of their former employees, and the Burlington said they would pay a great deal to keep them. The unions alleged that 12 nearby railroads were violating pronouncements of neutrality by secretly carrying Burlington freight over their own lines to ease the pressure on the Burlington in their dispute. We ultimately, of course, saw that go to a court injunction uh, against the union and in favor of the railroad um, that Rachel mentioned earlier. Lumber customers of the Burlington reported that with the exception of a few urgent shipments that had been fouled up by the opening of the strike, they did not feel they were being particularly hurt by it and that service was starting to resume at the required pace. One commented that the brief lull had actually given his company time to catch up on other tasks that needed doing anyway. Emphasis on nonviolence and minimal confrontation of any kind continued to be mentioned in coverage. Pinkerton agents riding on board locomotives were described by the Tribune as being more for ornamentation than anything else. In fact, one superintendent was quoted denying that any of the railroad's locomotives had been disabled at all. The Brotherhood of Engineers released a lengthy statement to the press re-outlining their position in the dispute and what their grievances were. Nothing really new came up in this except a mild expression of resentment that the press had perhaps not fairly represented the case to the public. On March 4th, a more editorial-type column appeared on the first Sunday since the start of the strike on Monday the 27th. The Tribune argued that the General Republic rejected nine out of ten of the two Brotherhood's grievances against the Burlington as, quote, unreasonable, end quote. Worse, it was supposedly becoming clear that despite the frequent repetition of the existence of a long list of demands, only two of them seemed to be a real point of contention leading to a strike— the Tribune editorialized that in fact the Burlington was unique relative to nearby railroads and thus had cause to maintain a different compensation formula for engineers and firemen, particularly because adopting the standardized system would cause certain minor branches, of which they reportedly had many, to become unprofitable to operate as they were long in miles but low in customers. The editorial also opined that the public would not tolerate the spread of the strike to other railroads who had actually conceded to the Brotherhood demands already. Rachel? On March 5th, uh, the Tribune reported that New York and Brooklyn-based B of LE members met in Tammany Hall to endorse the CBMQ strike and to throw their support behind the expansion of the strike to neighboring lines if there wasn't a speedy resolution to the strike. Uh, St. Paul engineers, uh, the St. Paul was a, a neighboring line, um, so the St. Paul engineers also endorsed the strike and took up a collection of money to support the strikers. They also supported a boycott of Q Freight in handling it. Uh, rumors of strikes on neighboring lines started to circulate, but none were really confirmed. 
Uh, Burlington's passenger lines are running normally in most locations, but freight is still backed up and struggling to resume normal service. And scab workers were replacing the striking workers at a very quick rate in some locations on the lines, as Bill mentioned earlier. Um, they were already starting to replace most of the workers. Um, on March 9th, another editorial type column, um, they were calling for arbitration and they even suggested that the railroad could afford a wage increase with their great profits. But they also pointed out that management was claiming a problem with the discipline of the employees. And so the Tribune had a modest proposal that the government uh, becomes a body that issues licenses to the railroad employees with the ability to revoke those licenses if the employees threaten to strike and block commerce. And in that system, the government would have the authority to arbitrate all grievances under under it. Um, so kind of a, an odd proposal, I think. Um, they did point out that there was a, a similar proposal for licensing conductors um, through with the government uh, issuing these licenses. Um, so it, it wasn't coming completely out of left field, but I don't think it would really work in this situation. Um, March 11th. Uh, the Santa Fe, another neighboring line, um, the Santa Fe engineers threaten a strike unless a boycott of the queue is allowed. Um, but however, there was much talk of the impending federal injunction and a lot of engineers on those other lines uh, didn't really want to run afoul of the law and end up in jail for contempt. Um, there was also an open letter from the wife of a railroad employee talking about how a general strike would make her family suffer. And she called the strikers selfish and unthinking of how the strike impacts families like hers. So the Tribune was obviously uh, rallying sentiment against the strikers, um, just basically, but what about our treats? What about commerce? What about the economy? Um, with little regard for, for why the strikers were striking and what their demands were. So it was very much just definitely um, cultivating that, that uh, contempt for the strikers. Um, on March 14th, uh, the Tribune uh, wrote another editorial calling for a congressional ban on railroad strikes, similar to an existing ban on strikes stopping oceanic commerce. They said that workers were holding the economy hostage and that the general public is injured by the strikers. So just kind of continuing that theme. On March 20th, uh, rumors of strikes on other roads abound. Iowa Central was on strike with many other threatening. Uh, the Burlington strikers were hoping for a quick resolution with a potential end coming that week. Obviously, very optimistic, uh, very blindly optimistic. It didn't happen uh, th that way. Um, on April 1st, uh, the Fort Wayne and St. Paul lines suffer strikes of their own, and St. Paul commuter lines were stopped for the day, leaving suburbanites without service. On the other hand, another uh, laboring road, the Lake Shore Road, handled Q cars without incident. Um, uh the head of the B of LE, Arthur, stated that there were no intentions for a general strike, and he actually denounced the actions of the Santa Fe engineers, saying that he only approved of Burlington engineers leaving their post. Um, I'm guessing he really didn't want to fall afoul of the injunction, didn't want to be seen as encouraging um, engineers on neighboring lines to, to go against that injunction, get in trouble, get arrested for contempt of, of the injunction. Um, on April 3rd, the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers offered to seek arbitration to settle the strike. Um, they stated that they were willing to accept any reasonable offer from the company. And although there were rumblings of switchmen and enginemen on neighboring lines to continue to try to boycott CB&Q freight, um, they were handling transfers as usual. 
Um, there were some confrontations between them and the scab workers, um, some kind of rough and tumble uh, getting up in each other's faces, but uh, nothing major happened. Uh, kind of continuing that theme, there was kind of talk of some violence, but nothing major actually really was happening at that time. Um, April 4th, uh, the Tribune reported on the congressional investigations into the Q strikes and again called for the radical solution to this strike and any future rail strikes, the congressional ban on strikes for railroad workers. So they were really beating that drum over those couple of weeks. Um, on April 5th, uh, switchmen on other lines, uh, the St. Paul and Fort Wayne lines, again tried to start a boycott, but the engine men don't join in. Uh, forcing the switchmen to end their efforts to support the CB&Q strikers. Uh, the freight lines were still running on reduced capacity, but they were able to handle about 60% of a normal day's work. Um, company officials expressed their readiness to handle any business that came their way, and uh, that lumber freight had bounced back um, to normal levels. And the Tribune foresaw that the strike would end soon. On an interesting note, there was a report about a court case where a striking engineer testified against his own father. Uh, the father, E.P. Samus, had run a locomotive from Aurora to Galesburg on February 26th, the first day of the strike, while drunk to the point that he needed assistance to board the engine. Um, his son, who was actually a striking engineer, W.C. Samus, wanted to demonstrate through his testimony to the court the need for CB&Q to employ qualified, competent engineers um, really heavily implying that the company needed to agree to the union's demands and the strike and bring the strikers back to work um, because they were the skilled workers that the company needed. Um, on April 8th, uh, the Tribune states that the strike is effectively over at this point, and they editorialized that striking doesn't pay and that the workers had struck in vain. Um, the opinion of the author was basically they, they messed around and then they found out. They stated that arbitration would have been a better path to resolving the grievances, and basically that supply and demand is the natural and immutable law of the land, and um, that the strikers didn't really have any, any uh, reasonable demand to a higher wage because of supply and demand and because the market couldn't support a higher wage. So, um, Bill, do you want to talk about the last few uh, articles? By April 16th, the Chicago Tribune estimated that the railroad had lost $1.8 million in traffic receipts and spent $180,000 on private security, $50,000 on scab workers, and $50,000 on repairs to damaged property, and so on. They also estimated hundreds of thousands of dollars in lost wages to the workers, uh, which, again, the Brotherhoods were claiming that they had these big treasuries going into this fight and that they could replenish them at a moment's notice if they needed to. But, you know, at, at a certain point, that's adding up to more money than they had and more money than they could keep raising indefinitely from their members around the country. Uh, a April 21st article in the Chicago Tribune promised that the unions were about to spend significantly on some complicated venture to incentivize diversion of freight traffic away from the queue and over rival lines. This didn't really transpire, but it does underscore the interesting reality that there were so many rail lines going into Chicago that shipping customers were not particularly threatened long term by a strike after their initial opening confusion because they could simply move their business to competing railroads if need be. Presumably that means they didn't feel a need to add pressure for a settlement. 
The same article from April 21st also reported that the strikers were very confident that the new Interstate Commerce Commission would investigate their situation and favorably recommend a bill to Congress supporting arbitration, which would in turn surely be passed immediately. This was also far too optimistic as it turned out. So as we said, the die was basically cast by the end of the first week. They continued this struggling, uh, you know, through basically April, but it was already over. I mean, the Tribune's not wrong to have said that um, as early as April 8th. Um, But of course, as we said, various efforts continue to try to sway the public and build support for this strike and maybe hopefully get their jobs back. As we said, that's not what ends up happening. It it ends up being a total defeat. Um, But besides the uh, ill-fated dynamite campaign that seems to have been provoked by Pinkerton infiltrators, there was also uh, an, an attempt to just uh, rally public opinion with various, you know, um, appeals to them uh, rather than taking extreme direct action. Uh, and there was an interesting June 8th, 1888 poster that's available on the uh, Wikimedia Commons. This is a poster in support of the strike, alluding presumably to the big crash under a strike breaker's operation on the first day of the strike. So I'm going to read out the uh, copy from the poster. Take the great American scab route, the CB and Q. Skull and crossbones, skull and crossbones. Prepare to meet thy God, skull and crossbones, skull and crossbones. Close connections with the hereafter. Through tickets to points on the sticks. NB, death claims promptly settled. Paul Morton, general prevaricator and monumental liar. From the Wymore Democrat, which is in Nebraska, quote, the strike is not off. Nor will it be until the CB&Q recognizes the fact that it must pay as good wages as its competitors and then sign a treaty with its old engineers and firemen who had worked and been so successful in bringing it up to its former standing and standard of excellence. The public realized the fact that a railroad like the CB&Q cannot be run with threshing machine engineers and vagrants and drunkards in the places of their old reliable engineers and firemen, and the working men and their friends or the business public of good judgment, will not patronize a road which is at present a menace to life and property, and a road which seeks to crush out an organization which has done more to make traveling a safety than all the companies on this continent combined by placing competent and sober men on the engines and an organization which practices industry, sobriety, truth, justice, and morality. And that's signed Committee St. Joseph, June 8, 1888. And that was at the bottom of the poster. Again, stuff like this didn't really seem to work. The public didn't seem to agree with them. Again, I don't think they were really doing much in the way to sway the public on their own. And stuff like this is coming months and months and months into the strike, by which time probably nobody's paying attention. And the idea of getting the customers, uh, whether they're passengers or shipping customers for freight, to boycott just doesn't really carry any weight um, as long as the train is operating when it's supposed to with replacement crews and getting where it needs to go and not having a spectacular wreck which again there were some wrecks but maybe three that i saw and there could have been some other ones but probably not more than like the normal amount after that anyway one other miscellaneous note that i wanted to make just for context before we wrap up unlike many of his peers among railroad executives at the time uh, CB&Q President Charles Elliott Perkins was not a former Civil War officer by background. 
And as far as I know, he did not serve at all, despite being squarely in the age bracket for normal service or conscription in the war. He was instead a railroad clerk at his uncle's railroad, that's as far as I could tell. Uh, And in 1886, during the Great Southwest Strike on the Gould Railroads nearby, he ordered all CB&Q workers to quit the Knights of Labor or be fired. By the start of 1888, he was committed to ending all unionization of any kind on his railroad, which he ultimately succeeded with, and his intense hostility in this strike is often credited with shifting Eugene Debs' views on labor relations permanently, as mentioned at the beginning of the episode. Because basically, the company spent an enormous amount of money, regardless of what it would have cost to just settle without a strike in the first place, to make sure that they had the control and power and that they got rid of the union presence on their railroad. So, Rachel, uh, before we wrap up, did you have any closing thoughts or observations on this strike and the influence that it had on people like Debs? Well, I I think this is kind of an anomaly amongst the strikes we've talked about, just in the fact that there weren't a lot of demonstrations. Um, I think it got mentioned quite a bit in the newspaper articles where journalists were just kind of milling around at uh, various uh, railroad stops and looking for demonstrations and just not finding them. So I think that's pretty unusual among the strikes we've covered on the show. And also, I think... uh, the small scale of the strike. Um, We've talked about some really, really big strikes. So I think just uh, about a thousand workers from each union joining in is is pretty small scale, Um, especially among, in a region where there was such heavy uh, saturation of railroads. um, It, it just seems like they couldn't, they didn't really have a chance to get off the ground and um, even though they drug it out, it was effectively over within a couple months. Um, So it, it, yeah, there were a few hallmarks that make this unusual um, compared to other strikes we've covered. Yeah, exactly. It's small in scale. It does involve the engineers instead of not involving the engineers. And they didn't seem to do any sort of public engagement strategy, whether at the you know borders of the property of the railroad where the public could come and meet with them or holding some sort of rallies or whatever. It just seemed like a very uh, small, lackluster and internal affair um, didn't seem like it worked out. And you can clearly see the way in which the workers from various different, uh, union and non-union backgrounds and different companies and so forth were all pitted against each other to make sure that the strike failed. Anyway, Rachel, thank you for coming on this week to talk about the Burlington Railroad strike of 1888, which while it was small, was influential in its own way. Glad to be here as always.